ಕಂಸಚಾಣೋರಮರ್ದನಂ ದೇವಕೀಪರಮಂದಂ ಕೃಷ್ಣ ವಂದೇ ಜಗದ್ಗುರು ಸೊ ವಿ ಆರ್ ಸ್ಟಡಿಂಗ್ ದ ಭಗವದ್ಗೀತಾ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಟ್ವೆಲ್ತ್ ಚಾಪ್ಟರ್ ವಿ ಹವ್ ಬಿಗನ್ ದ ಟ್ವೆಲ್ತ್ ಚಾಪ್ಟರ್ ವಿಚ್ ಇಸ್ ಅ ಪರ್ಟಿಕ್ಯುಲರ್ಲಿ ಬಿಲವೆಡ್ ಚಾಪ್ಟರ್ ಇಟ್ ಡಿಸ್ಕಸಸ್ ಭಕ್ತಿ ಯೋಗ ದ ವೇ ಆಫ್ ಡಿವೋಷನ್ we had just started and in the beginning of the 12th chapter it begins with a question arjuna asks a question to krishna that you have taught me two paths the path of knowledge and the path of devotion the path of uh, seeking the formless attributeless absolute brahman and the path of love and devotion and surrender to the personal god so the both are yogis one is a gyana yogi the yogi on the path of knowledge the other one is a bhakti yogi the yogi on the path of devotion but which of them is a greater yogi who knows yoga better or to put it even more directly which is the better path he's asking that um this kind of a question and especially uh, sri krishna's response puts the classical non-dualist in trouble. Uh, in fact, uh, the classical non-dualist would say that there's only one path. You have to realize that you are the absolute. You are that. And devotion to God can help you at best. But it can't be an alternative that either you love God and attain to God realization through that path or you inquire into who am I and attain to enlightenment through this path one of the two it can't be that way so the classical non-dualist will try to uh, classical advaitin will try to straight jacket you into one path that is yes you are welcome to and it's highly recommended that you cultivate devotion to god and from there you must proceed to um, uh, you know the path of of uh, self knowledge the knowledge that you are brahman krishna's response Uh, to this question which is better he not only validates the question he says yeah it's a good question actually and he says the path of devotion is better <laughs> so we saw that last time he gave a short introduction to the path of devotion and he said that's better and today we will see he explains so he contrasts it with the path of knowledge and then explains why it is more difficult and then after that we won't get to it today but from uh, the verses after that verses 3 4 5 are an explanation a beautiful concise explanation of the path of knowledge what is the path of knowledge what is it that you are seeking what is the practice and what do you get all of that and also why is it difficult and then from the 6th verse onwards to the end of this short chapter 6th verse onwards to the end of this short chapter is a beautiful a uh, wonderful teaching on the path of devotion so that's what's ahead of us now um one monk put it very beautifully there are only these two ways in he put it in hindi jano ya mano do hi raste hain mahatma ji jano ya mano there are only two ways o oh monk either you know it or you believe it 
of course most of us start off by believing uh, but the path of knowledge is in path of inquiry not on believing something not on faith but the path of faith is also uh, an equally valid path and it works sri ramakrishna all right let's go a little bit more into this before we dive into it into the verses themselves there is a classical a great master of classical non dualism madhusudan saraswati who lived about 400 500 years ago has written some uh, masterpieces of of on non dual vedanta and he has written perhaps the best comment the most exhaustive commentary not exhausting but exhaustive commentary on uh, the bhagavad gita classical commentary it's called gurhartha deepika the lamp illumining profound knowledge a lamp in illumining the profound intent gurhartha there in a commentary to the verses which we are going to start now the this question is raised an objection is raised that uh, um if the goal is the same if the result is the same then it stands to reason that you should take the easier path so you're going to reach some place and there are two ways of reaching it or multiple ways of reaching it and one of them is easier than the rest since all these paths are going to take you to the same destination then it makes sense that you would take the easier path why why would you unnecessarily cause trouble however this is the objection to this whole discussion the objection is however the goal is not the same this is an objection from the non dualist the goal is not the same by the path of non dual uh, knowledge you investigate who am i or what am i and denying or, or transcending body and senses and mind not this not this you realize the one consciousness illumining all experiences in life uh, the undimmed unflickering light and you realize that as yourself i am this uh, and that light itself is the ground of this entire universe the whole universe appears and disappears exists and disappears in that light it has its existence its um, sustenance its support as that light which you discover yourself has and that is the realization i am brahman i am not the body not the mind i am uh, limitless luminosity and this limitless luminosity is also the ground of the entire universe it's not just my real nature it's the essence the atman the ground of the entire universe so you realize this and then this sets you free from samsara and the travails of how it does it's uh, you know you have to go deep into it so this is the result you're looking for on the path of knowledge this is moksha freedom on the path of devotion this is all the the person who's doubting this who is uh, has a problem with this kind of thing uh, on the path of devotion however you worship the personal god you worship narayan or vishnu or the incarnation of personal god like krishna and what will you get what's the goal here what's the end game you develop devotion perhaps you have mystical visions of god you feel the presence of god and after death what do the texts promise you you will go to the abode of god heaven and dwell there in eternal loving relationship with this god whom you have worshiped that's the goal which is put forward by every theistic religion every religion which is a god centered religion but it, you have not realized the truth 
you have not realized what that god is in reality what this universe is in reality and what you are in reality that they are all three are the same um, this world jagat sentient beings all sentient beings us all of us and the god of this universe all of them are nothing but the attributeless brahman appearing in all these ways until you realize that have you really attained moksha have you really attained um, you know eternal freedom yes you may go to an eternal heaven and you never have to be born again in that sense you have attained moksha but you have not yet reached the final destination so this is all an objection and therefore the goal reached by devotion and the goal reached by knowledge are not the same the goal reached by devotion is inferior the goal reached by knowledge is superior and ultimate and therefore the path of knowledge gives you a higher result and therefore it stands to reason that you have to put forth more effort it's difficult but it's difficult because it gives give it gives you a greater result you see the argument here no two paths leading you to the same goal you would always take the easier path but two paths leading you to different goals one of them is much higher and better and you know the sort of the ultimate even if that path is a little more difficult you would prefer that because you would want you would want the best for yourself so the we are promising on the path of knowledge truth realization ultimate truth there's nothing beyond non duality and so it's more difficult yes but uh, uh, that doesn't mean you have to follow the other path this is the question and radhusudan saraswati's answer there is interesting i will contrast his answer with sri ramakrishna's answer madhusudan saraswati there says he he opposes this logic that the non dual realization is higher than the dualistic realization the realization that you are brahman is higher and is ultimate the realization that i am a sentient being in love with god in the presence of the divine that's lower the attributeless brahman is the ultimate truth the personal god is transitional it's it's on the way so he he holds on to that that's the classical advaita perspective but what he says is no it's not that the path of devotion is uh, uh, is like a is like training is preliminary is secondary is inferior no why not because he explains the path of devotion when you purify yourself and turn away from worldliness and focus on god and love and worship and adore god and make god the center of your life which is talked about here immerse yourself in the love of god that transforms us so much and makes us so um, pure of all worldliness all taint of worldliness that at a point what what will happen is for this devotee who will feel the presence of god who will inevitably get mystical experiences of god who will feel the protection of god also in addition will because of the sheer purity and transformation which has taken place within himself or herself the vedantic teaching which this person already presumably already has the training having attended many vedanta talks and listened to many youtube talks and come to classes that knowledge will at some point or the other other flash you can say by the grace of god to whom you are devoted by the inner sheer force of your devotional practices by your inner transformation even if you do not want it that non dual knowledge it will come to you you will get it 
And so not only you will have devotion, not only the presence of God, not only um, after death you may go to heaven, but before death or after, after physical death, at some point you will get the non-dual knowledge also. So that higher result, I admit he says it's a higher result, but the higher result is also available to you. So you will get it. So notice he has accepted the paradigm of the questioner. The questioner's paradigm is devotion, personal God is lower, knowledge and uh, realization I am Brahman is higher. One takes you to that, that path, but that path takes you to the, to the realization of that I am the absolute. This path takes you to a devotion to God and faith of faith, faith on God. Maybe you go to heaven after death. And so that path is better. He says, no, this path also will give you that result. This result plus that result. So this is the answer. And this answer is generally accepted by classical non-dualists to this day. If you see the monks and the practitioners in India, those who are non-dualists, you will find they are also devotees. They are also devotees. I have seen myself um, one of the most radical non-dual monks I met. He would proudly say, I am half an atheist, Swami. So, he was so apparently dismissive of all rituals, forms, uh, all uh, devotion to personal God. And yet, and, and in his little cottage, there was nothing. There were no pictures of gods and goddesses. Curiously though, there was a picture of the Holy Mother. <laughs> though he does not belong to our tradition, somehow. Uh, but I asked him, uh, alright, so he was this strict non-dualist. However, one day I chanced to enter his cottage for some, some work I went in unannounced because he didn't open when I knocked. So I opened, the door was open, so I pushed it open. Little cottage, just about this big, right on the, um, the Bhagirathi, the, when the Ganga comes down from the glacier there. This is about 10,000, 11,000 feet high in, in the Himalayas, which is not too high, by the way. It's about one third the way up Mount Everest. <laughs> So uh, he was sitting, I still remember, I was so taken aback to see him in a corner on his bed wrapped with a blanket around himself and sitting ramrod straight and repeating, he had the mantra or I think if he had rosary or I don't remember but he was repeating the mantra. So I quickly left the place. I asked another monk, I remember an old Punjabi monk, I asked him, that Swami, I thought he was a strict non-dualist and uh, had nothing to do with personal devotion. And that old Punjabi monk, he said to me, Are wo to chupa rustam hai. How do I translate that? He is a, a hidden master or a secret master. <laughs> that means there is a secret side to him, which is a personal devotion, love of God, which he denies on the surface. So that's the classical approach. Now there's one more approach. I'll just mention that and dive into this. The approach of Sri Ramakrishna. So the classical Advaita approach also might not appeal to. Suppose there are many, many, many schools of Vedanta, which are non-dualist, which are not non-dualistic. Some are dualistic. If you say to a devotee of Krishna, or somebody on the path of Vishishta Advaita, devotee of Narayana, somebody on the path of, uh, say, Achintya Bheda Bheda, Gaudiya Vaishnavism, the schools of Vaishnavism, a devotee of Krishna, or of Rama, uh, that. Oh, it's not bad. What you're doing is it's, it's really good. 
you will get devotion to God and finally you will achieve the much vaunted non-dual knowledge. He might just as well say to you, I don't want your non-dual knowledge. I couldn't care less. I love my God and I want to be with, be with God. Forever and ever and ever. I want to ma maintain my individuality and love God and enjoy the bliss of love of God. Sri Ramakrishna asked Swami Vivekananda, there is a bowl of nectar. And suppose you were a bee or a fly or something, uh, what would you do? Um, would you sip the nectar or would you jump into the bowl of nectar? And Vivekananda said, oh, if I jump in, I'll die. I, I'll just sit very carefully on the edge of the bowl and sip the nectar. And Sri Ramakrishna smiled and said, oh, but this is the nectar of immortality. You won't die if you jump into it. You'll become immortal. So both ways. Do you want to become sugar or do you want to taste sugar? These are the two ways. Sri Ramakrishna says, in either way you are experiencing that ultimate reality. See, non-dualism privileges the non-dualistic knowledge above the dualistic knowledge, above the dualistic devotion. So you have devotion to God, that's very good, but please progress further and realize you and that God are, have, are one reality. You are not the body-mind, God is also not the personal God. There is one absolute existence, consciousness, consciousness, bliss, which you are. But for those who do not like that path, are not, not drawn to it, classical Advaita would seem to insist, but you have to come to non-duality in the end. I've seen devotees say that, isn't it? Isn't that true, Swami? But that's the classical Advaita path. The dualistic path, the devotee's path is not that you have to come to non-duality at the end. They may even deny that there's no point in non-duality. There are some schools of Vaishnava Vedanta who will say this so-called idea of non-duality is false. There's no non-dual Brahman. There's only God. They stop at that. And they stop at that not because they are lower. It's they stop at that because their framework, their theology um, does not permit an attributeless Brahman. Or there, is a, there are other schools of Vaishnava Vedanta which say that your so-called attributeless Brahman, we admit it, that's lower actually. Mm -hmm. He says there are some fools, I'm quoting from them now, there are some fools who experience this radiance, a formless radiance, and they lose consciousness there, and they think they have attained the highest. But they just if they would only persist, they would realize what they experienced was just the light of the body of Krishna. The light emanating, they call it Tanubha. The light emanating from the radiance emanating from the body of Krishna. If they would just persist a little further in their devotions, in their um, meditation, in their surrender to Krishna, they would see beyond that so-called light which they, call, which they call limitless consciousness or whatever. Beyond that they would find a little blue boy mm -hmm. standing with a flute and with a peacock feather. In there. So what they do is, either they will deny your non-dual Brahman or they'll make that non-dual Brahman lower than the personal God. Mm. So ultimately personal God has to be realized. And Sri Ramakrishna says, that's also fine. It's not lower. Uh, so whether you realize the non-dual Brahman, whether you realize the dualistic God of love, uh, in e either way you have touched reality. And you will be free. So that's the broadest kind of approach. Alright, so all that's background. Now we get into it. Uh, please, we have done the first one and we are in the second verse. Um, please chant after me. Arjuna Vacha, Arjuna Vacha, Evam Satata Yuktaye, Evam Satata Yuktaye, 
भक्तास्वासते भक्तास्वासते ये चाप्यक्षरम्यक्त ये चाप्यक्षरम्यक्त so this was the question asked by Arjuna between those who worship you, God, the personal God, and those who worship the imperishable, unmanifest. Who knows yoga better? And then the answer by Krishna. Shri Bhagavan Uvacha, Shri Bhagavan Uvacha, Maya Vishya Mano Yemam, Maya Vishya Mano Yemam, Nitya Yukta Upasate, Nitya Yukta Upasate, Shraddhaya Parayo Peta, Shraddhaya Parayo Peta, Teme Yukta Tamamataha, Teme Yukta Tamamataha. Straight answer. Those who have devotion to God are superior. <laughs> Throwing all of us non-dualists into a flurry of commentary. What he means by this is actually footnotes and explanations. <laughs> so we, I had already discussed this last time. But uh, a couple of points before we go on. He says, Shraddhaya paraya peta. They have the highest Shraddha. The word Shraddha, it's translated as faith. But faith is um, kind of inadequate English translation. Shraddha is very deep. Shraddha is belief, faith. It's a grasp on something that you don't know yet, but it's real. So you, you can grasp reality by knowing it. Or if you don't know it yet, but you can grasp reality by Shraddha. The deeper, if you in investigate into the meaning of the word Shraddha in an Advaitic sense, a non-dual sense, Sat, it comes from Sat. Sat means pure being, existence, isness itself. And in a Paroksha sense, the Sanskrit word is Paroksha. Paroksha means distant or indirect. That I am that attributeless being that is not clear yet. I have read about it, I have heard about it. But it's not a, a, a matter of knowledge for me yet. I can't say I know it. I can't say I know it. I read about it, heard about it, studied it, tried to reason about it. But I can't say I know it. But I, I firmly believe it is so. So that is a grasp, an indirect grasp on that ultimate reality. This is called Shraddha. And we cannot progress in life in whatever endeavor unless you have this Shraddha. Whether you want to earn a million dollars on Wall Street, whether you want to make a scientific breakthrough in a, in a lab, whether you are writing a novel or painting a picture, everywhere there's a Shraddha that this is worthwhile, this will make my life better, it can be done, I can do it. All of these things are necessary. Otherwise you wouldn't start it, you wouldn't persist in it and you won't see it through to the end. Shraddha is what gives us um, what gives us stability, energy, focus and stamina to persist to the end in anything, any endeavor of life, especially in spiritual life. So Shraddha is important. Um, in the Katha Upanishad, 
we read about that little boy who went to the house of death and asked questions about what is reality you know what exists after death who am i really to the lord of death but it starts the journey starts with shraddha the, the kathopanishad says shraddha avivesha shraddha entered into that little boy and the commentary there explains shraddha is astikya buddhi astikya buddhi means the conviction that it is so you know all religion theistic religion depends on it is so faith how do you know the atheist will ask the agnostic will ask so i don't know but i believe yeah. i don't know yet but i believe and that belief if it's deep and strong it is uh, very close to knowledge not yet knowledge one must be very clear there swami vivekananda gave great emphasis on shraddha this that shraddha it's very important it's a kind of um now it is in airlines and all you have pre boarding <laughs> this is sort of pre boarding for heaven <laughs> this shraddha you you have to have a grasp on it it's not imagination it's not just kind of blind belief no without this one cannot progress in spiritual life it's what distinguishes a person who investigates spiritual life seriously i want to do this and another person who is not interested or just curious this shraddha distinguishes so shraddhaya paraya peta see the direct disciples of sri ramakrishna holy mother at a time when sri ramakrishna had already passed away when many people came to become monks or they came became devotees they would praise this new these newcomers they would say we saw him and we we are sold we are um, you know uh, we have become his but you have not seen him you have read about him you have heard about him and still you have come how wonderful you all are what are they praising shraddha praising the shraddha then just a comment on the word yukta it comes up again and again and again throughout yukta the word yukta arjuna used it in his question and krishna also uses this this word nitya yukta yukta tama yukta is the same root as yoga a path to realization and yukta means connected centered in tuned into many words are there in american english clued in <laughs> you are clued in others are clueless so yukta centered in now this word has been used a number of times throughout the gita some of the most important ones i'll just mention this gives us an idea of what true spirituality is so the word comes up for example in the um eighth verse of the sixth chapter i bookmarked it here chapter 6 eighth verse what is yukta what does it consist in the eighth verse of chapter 6 which we have done already gyana vigyana triptatma kutastho vijitendriya yukta ityuchyate yogi samaloshtashma kanchana it says the yogi who is fulfilled by knowledge and realization so what is knowledge spending your time in listening studying reasoning and meditating shravana manana nididhyasana the three components of the non dual path 
spending your time in devotion, in reading the lives of the saints, of the enlightened beings, um, in uh, devotional practices, in japa, in worship, bhakti yoga. Spending your time in meditation, calming the mind in meditation morning and evening. Spending your time in uh, service, in a temple, ashram, at your home, or to, in a secular sense, to people who need service, need help, karma yoga. So this is, you're fulfilled by spiritual practices and also by the realization. Uh, Vijnana means, commentator, commentator says, aparoksha anubhava, direct experience, God experience. It could be in a mystical sense of, a devotional sense of the presence of God. Many mystics feel the presence of God. You might say, isn't that imagination? No, if you ask them, that's more real than this world. That's more real than this world. What you call real world is, is for, for them, you, you are sleepwalking. You are not even in touch with reality. So, direct presence of God. Or those who are on the non-dual path, the realization, first time, the clarity, unshakable clarity you see for the first time, oh, I am actually not this body. I am actually not even this mind. This body is there, senses are there, mind is there. But I am the one existence light which is, which is and which shines. This clarity, this is called um, Vijnana. And the yogi, the spirit, spiritual master, the practitioner is Tripta. Is uh, Triptatma, is fulfilled. This is the sign of spirituality, the sp sign of Yukta tuned in that does not go around with um, begging bold to the world for fulfillment I want fulfillment yes I'm spiritual I, I study and I meditate but I also want fulfillment from uh, um, you know um, from friends from uh, social media from um, uh, you know, merrymaking from food and outings and activities, whatever, the hundred different things, job and career, those are the places I'm looking for, for fulfillment. No, they will, they, this person will not. It will be completely fulfilled, deeply happy. Triptatma, then you are yukta. You, that is the one meaning of yukta. Then another meaning you find in the fifth chapter, 23rd verse. And also it says, Samaloshtashma Kanchana, in the 8th verse of 6th chapter, this yogi re regards gold and a clod of um, a clay and a stone as the same. And that The gold has no particular value for this person compared to uh, the, 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 the clod of clay or something. Then the 23rd verse of the 5th chapter, Shaknoti Yehaivaya Sodam Prakshari Ravimokshana the one who in this very life is able, at this moment, is able to withstand the waves, the impulses of passion and anger. Prakshareera vimokshana, before the death of this body, that means here in this life, and the powerful impulses rule us. I understand everything, Swami, but at, when it, at that moment I can't control myself. Somebody misbehaves, I feel furious. The one, the yogi is the one who is able to restrain the impulse at that moment. 
is not swept away by waves of anger and passion. So first of all, stop the reaction at the level of the body. Don't send that harsh text in reply. <laughs> I'll give that fellow a piece of my mind. No, don't. If you can, stop it at that moment. Then a deeper one. Don't write that. Don't say it. At a more subtle level, don't even allow the mind to be disturbed. Don't allow the serenity of your mind to be to be spoiled, to be to break out into waves. It's like mind is delicate. It's like a calm body of water. Don't let ripples arise in it. That's difficult. If you can do that, do that on basis of what? On the basis of your spiritual realization. You are deeply fulfilled by your spiritual practices and by the presence of God. You do not look to the world for fulfillment and nothing in the world has particular value for you compared to what you have already got. Then it's easier not to be upset by the world. Not to be pulled. Terror and temptation. Anxiety and anger. And anxiety and attraction. The world does these two things to us. Either it attracts us or it causes anxiety in us. Neither anxiety nor attraction. Neither terror nor temptation. If you can withstand and not allow the mind to. And if one cannot do that, the next best thing is to recover quickly. As quickly as possible. Some people lose their temper. Next moment they're calm. And they relax. They're calm. Others lose their temper and they simmer and stew for days and weeks, sometimes for a lifetime. <laughs> yeah. Cultivate enmities and carefully nurture grudges. <laughs> no, never, never do that. It's a foolish thing to do. So the yogi, yukta is centered. And then one more time, yukta comes among the many times. is a very powerful verse in the 18th verse of the 4th chapter. Karmanya karmaya pashyet Akarmani cha karmaya Sabuddhiman manusheshu Sa yukta Kritsna karma krit The one who sees action in inaction And inaction in action <laughs> That sounds contradictory When you are not acting You are obviously not doing anything No The one who is clued in The one who is tuned in The one who is centered Sees that in the midst of the action The body is doing all action um, the tongue is speaking, the mind is thinking, I am doing nothing. I am that one light which illumines all the activities of the mind, the senses and the body. That light by itself does nothing. So if you are centered in that sense, he says, Sayukta. Spirituality is not against action. You may be in a, a dynamo of action. Uh, you may be working in your career, in your uh, community. You are doing a lot of spiritual practices also, various kinds. All of the action is going on and that's wonderful. From your perspective, you are the witness, unaffected witness. If you can, remain like that. Not easy, of course, but he says that's yukta. Then he uses the word yukta tamamataha. Krishna says, among all these yogis who are yukta, by their uh, knowledge that I am Brahman, uh, they are fulfilled by their spiritual practices and the realization that I am Brahman. That's one. Jnana, Vijnana, Triptatma. I've seen many such. Monks and um, senior devotees also. Uh, yeah, come. There are lots of chairs. That's it. They're truly fulfilled by spirituality. 
you know one of the things which attracted me to become a monk to spiritual life was the sight of these monks in an ashram uh, near our house and i saw these monks young and old one thing was common to them they didn't have anything i noticed that my parents they had each other they were married they had children they had money they had a status in society they had relatives they had things to do a lot of you know religious things but also lots and lots of secular things to do and plans and projects in life and so and so forth and they were not happy <laughs> i mean if you ask them i said no we were happy i mean all right sort of with some footnotes happy with some but then i saw these monks they didn't have families they were uh, they didn't have a single uh, rupee to their name they had no property uh, they had the minimum of possessions and they were happy not smi- the smiley face all the time but remarkably fulfilled and happy how this is a question that intrigued me and of course i liked the the serenity the purity and the um depth you felt in the monastery but that happiness gyana vigyana triptatma spirituality fills you satisfaction of desires is not the way to happiness that's a great great lesson that we have to learn that's a sign of maturity Somerset mom I've quoted him many times very beautifully he says uh, if you single mindedly pursue pleasure very soon you find nothing pleasing anymore there's a story of the king yayati in sanskrit a very well known episode in sanskrit uh, puranas and sanskrit literature this was a king who was getting old and he thought oh i'm getting old and feeble I can't enjoy, you know, I can't enjoy all the sense pleasures I used to like he was a, he was a king. What can I do? said so then he goes to his son the prince and he says, "Look, I'll strike a bargain with you. Can you give me your youth? I'll become I'll take your youth and you become old. And only for time being. So and then I'll enjoy life to my heart's content and I'll return your youth to you and I'll take up the old age." His son was dutiful and said, "Sure, dad." and suddenly his son became middle aged and aging with all problems and yayati became young again and what is that shop forever 21 <laughs> he became young again it is a very interesting name but why do, every time i say it everybody bursts out laughing why <laughs> but it is an important it is a very well named uh, shop what is it selling it's it's selling exactly what yayati wanted to buy You know, forever you <laughs> wanted to be 21 forever <laughs> yeah every one of us what nature gives us at the age of 21 19 2021 all of our science and <laughs> uh, and exercise and wellness practices and all of that is trying to hold on to that uh, one doctor said swami with the kind of advances we have made especially in the last 20 30 years in medical science we can sort of assure you you will live long but we can't assure you that you live well <laughs> Uh-huh. and another doctor said this is the the dirty secret of medical science after 40 it's all the way down <laughs> and if you live well you will manage the downward slide 
and if you do not live well you will it will become a tumble down <laughs> the hillside but but it's way down it's uh, you can only live well with effort after and except unless of you are a, one of those very rare people who have got very strong <laughs> genes you are endowed with you can have some amount of good health so yayati got a youth and then he proceeded to enjoy f- have as much fun as he wanted and he was a king so he got whatever he he wanted and so he enjoyed life for the next 1000 years everything is 1000 years so the next 1000 years and then he found after 1000 years after enjoying whatever he wanted to the extent he wanted to the quantity he wanted to the variety he wanted whatever he could think of he was not satisfied the cravings just kept on increasing he did not have one moment of fulfillment his mind had become even more restless he realized and the famous verse is there that a fire when you pour ghee it you know the oblation into it uh, clarified butter when you pour clarified b- butter that's how the vedic uh, hindus used to perform rituals when you pour that clarified butter ghee into a fire it blazes forth even more a fire will not be put out if you pour fuel into it similarly desires will not be quenched if you keep pouring sense objects into the whatever you want you keep getting and putting it into that it will not be quenched so you have to step back from it and direct your energies mind um, senses life to something higher so then he went back to his son and he did the right thing he returned his youth and took back his old age basically attained maturity it's a very deep story it shows the importance of accepting um, change and onward progress in life not holding on to uh, some, uh, our culture over the last uh, 50 years i would say 60 70 years has become an infantile culture it wants to freeze you literally forever 21 and even if you are not you cannot be frozen but it wants to sell you a life that you can somehow live at that level and somehow desirable it's neither desirable nor possible it's not even desirable it's idiotic children we had wonderful time as children we all look back nostalgically to childhood you what do you want to be a child again and go to grammar school and <laughs> no that's horrible <laughs> you've grown out of it you've become mature yukta tamamata so here krishna says that those among those who are yukta who are clued who are spiritual who are satisfied with spirituality who are able to withstand the waves of uh, anger or passion who are poised in spiritual consciousness in the midst of activity in the midst of action midst of doing their duties going around in life this wonderful person among such persons also the one who has deep devotion to god is yukta tama the most clued in the most centered the best among them and then he says mata this is this is my humble opinion you can take it leave it if you want <laughs> when he says it's my view that as that's the time you have to be most alert because he's telling us something very valuable there all right moving on now he comes back to a little explanation before teaching bhakti yoga is going to give us a little explanation of why did he say bhakti yoga the path of devotion is superior uh, he says uh, so he will explain what is that this other path the path of knowledge how do you do it what are the practices what will you get and why is it difficult 
verses 3, 4, and 5. First 3 and 4 together. Such a concise and powerful explanation of the path, path of knowledge. 3. Yetuaksharamanir desham Yetuaksharamanir desham Abhyaktam paryupasate Abhyaktam paryupasate Sarvatra gamachintyam cha Sarvatra gamachintyam cha Kutastham machalam dhruvam Kutastham machalam dhruvam Sanniyamya indriya gramam Sanniyamya indriya gramam Sarvatra samabuddhaya Sarvatra samabuddhaya Te prapnuvanti mameva Te prapnuvanti mameva Sarva bhuta hite rataha Sarva bhuta hite rataha But so this but is to distinguish these people from the devotees. That's one group, this is another group. But they who worship the imperishable, indescribable, unmanifest, all-pervading, inconceivable, changeless, immovable and eternal, controlling well their senses, even-minded everywhere and devoted to the good of all beings, also attain me alone. They'll come to the same goal. All right. There's a lot packed into it. So the whole of Advaita Vedanta has been packed into this. I'm going to give you the TED Talk version of it in the next 10 minutes or so. Yeah, TED Talks. I actually, the, I've given two. One proper one, one not so proper one. The not proper one was on uh, uh, online when things were in COVID, you know. But the real TED Talk which I gave, uh, that was my first experience, long time back. It's called, these are called TEDx. That means they're like franchisee. They, you can take the whole, they give you the whole kit. And so, so I tell you TED Talks, I'll give you the TED Talk. <laughs> anyway, the only point that I made was, it's very difficult. In 18 minutes, you have to finish saying whatever you're saying. And there's a clock ticking down from 18 to 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0 in hundreds of a second. It's like a, <laughs> a hundred meter sprint. And there's a clock ticking up from um, counting up, not even ticking, there are big digital clocks on the floor. You can't see them on, on the computer, but the person who's speaking can see them. They're like huge screens on the floor. The one of them is counting up from 0 to 18. 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0 in hundreds of a second up to 18 minutes. And the third one is showing you how you look, because it's an internet event. It's all very distracting for me. <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, so I'm going racing against the clock here. All right. What are we talking about here? Aksharam. The word Aksharam is used. The word Aksharam has multiple meanings. In Gita itself and in Upanishads, the word Aksharam has been used in multiple ways. Literally, it means that which does not decay, that which is imperishable. Those who know Indian languages know that akshara also means letters. The language, letters, alphabet, so they are known as akshara. All the Vedas, therefore, because they are made of letters, alphabets, they are known as akshara. And all of the Vedas are summarized in the Gayatri Mantra. 
This is a saying in the Vedas. The Vedas, you can, if you want to see the entire mass of literature, basically it's summarized in the Gayat Three Mantra. Those who have repeated it, they know. Om Bhur Bhuvaswa Tat Savitur Varinam. Basically it means we contemplate that limitless consciousness which illumines the intellect, which illumines the mind right now. And the Gayatri Mantra also can, is, can be condensed into the Mahavakya. You are that. Tattvamasi. Aham Brahmasmi. I am Brahman. And the Mahavakya, which is the essence of the Upanishads, which is basically Vedanta. That thou art. You are that. That also can be convinced, condensed further into one Akshara, into one letter. Om. Om. Into one, this one sound. Om. So, Akshara, those who are focused or centered in the Akshara, does it mean centered in Om? It could. Om is chanting, Om, meditating in Om is a practice in, uh, on the way of non-dual Vedanta, yes. Another meaning of Akshara is uh, sentient beings. We are called Akshara in the, in the Bhagavad Gita. Um, there is a, it's said that Brahman has these two natures. One is the ever-changing material nature. Other one is sentient beings. So, the sentient beings are called Akshara. And this entire material nature is called Akshara. Um, Prakriti or Maya is also called Akshara. In the 15th chapter, we will see soon, there are three levels. One is called Kshara Purusha. That means the bodies which are ever born and aging and dying. And there is a Rakshara Purusha at the level of Maya, at the level of Prakriti, nature itself. And beyond that is something called Purushottama. So that's, that's in the 15th chapter. What I mean here is the word Akshara is used in multiple senses. One sense is Om. It could mean Om. It could mean very legitimately, it could mean us, Akshara. It could mean Maya or Prakriti. But the sense in which it is used here is the fourth sense, which is the one you find those who are attending our Mundaka Upanishad classes, um, where the student asks the teacher, Sir, what is that by knowing which, which everything is known? You know one thing and you know, you know everything. And the teacher says there are two kinds of knowledge, the lower knowledge and the higher knowledge. Paravidya, Paravidya. Lower knowledge, everything. The entire university syllabus is lower knowledge. Then what is the higher knowledge? Yaya para yaya akshara madhigamyate. The higher knowledge is that by which the akshara is reached. And throughout the Mundaka Upanishad, the word used for the ultimate reality, existence, consciousness, bliss, attributeless Brahman, Paramatma, whatever you call it, Godhead, the absolute, is akshara. So, he says, those who are focused on the akshara, who want to realize the akshara. That's the real meaning. Anidesyam, which cannot be expressed by language. Why can it not be expressed by language? I mentioned this a number of times earlier, um, but I'll do it TED Talk style. So language requires one of five factors to operate. This is the Vedantic theory of language. Language requires one of five factors to operate. Without any, if there's none of them are present, language cannot work. One is class or genus or species, uh, species, jati. So cow is a class. You can use that class to designate this animal is a cow because there's a class of animals called cow. In any set, a member of a set, that's one way language operates. The second way language operates is through characteristics, qualities, adjectival. Table, but yes, but brown table. That's a black table. It's a brown table. 
So brown is a characteristic of the table. Uh, table is a member of a class. But the brown is a characteristic of the... Now you can say brown table to distinguish it from the black table. You have used a characteristic, a color. The tall man, the fast car, and things like that. The big, biggest planet. So you are using size or something, some characteristic. That is called guna. First one is called jati. Second one is called guna. Third one. You can use action. Driver of a car. The cook of this dish. Um, the speaker. So some action can be used. If some entity has some action, you can use it to speak about it. So third one is kriya. Fourth one is relation. You can talk about teacher, student, father, children. Um, relation. Relation can be used to use language to designate something. And the last one is, if nothing is present, you can just use conventional designation. In Sanskrit, it's called Rudi. Just call this person John or Stuart or Ram or Sita. Just name it. Just give it a name. It's not class or quality or action or relation. Nothing like that. It's just a name. That's how we've been named. But that also, so now these five, any one of them, language can work. But none of them are present in that akshara. Akshara does not belong to a class of things. There is no class of set of absolute ultimate realities. There is only one non-dual ultimate, ultimate reality. The, the ultimate non-dual reality is attributeless. Therefore it has no attribute. That ha does no action at all. There is nothing happening there. So action cannot be used to designate it. Relationship requires at least two. Dvinishtha sambandha. At least two entities are required to establish a relationship. There is no second. We just called it non-dual. Non-dual means there is no second apart from Brahman. So no relationship is possible with Brahman. And then can't you just name it? Use a term. Atman, Brahman, Absolute, whatever you call it. You can't. Because to name something you must point out, designate. Anguli Niddesha in Sanskrit. Point out with your finger. This baby is henceforth called, going to be called Ram uh, or Mary, this. If I just say, oh, he is Ramesh, you'll be puzzled. Who are you talking about, Swami? I won't tell you, but he is Ramesh. <laughs> Have I been able to communicate? No, communication has failed. I know what I mean, but you don't know what I mean. So the enlightened one can use language like Atman, Brahman, that you are and all of that. And it is clear meaning for that person. Even without using any words, it has clear meaning for that person. But for the rest of us, it has no meaning because it fails to designate. If I say, your real nature, not body, not mind, not body, not mind, we understand. But your real nature, witness consciousness, at that part, Swami, I, f I can't follow that. <laughs> Come again, I'd, I didn't quite follow you there. Language fails there. So th that point being, anirdeshyam, not designated by language. All of this was meant, meant to point that out. Abhyaktam, uh, unmanifest. Unmanifest how? It's not something that can, the absolute reality is not something that can be seen with the eyes, it cannot be heard, smelt, tasted, touched. Also, by the extension of our senses, it's not something that can be detected with the telescope or a microscope, no matter how powerful. Uh, you can put up the telescope. What's that one in, in space, the most powerful one they have put up? James Cobb. James Webb. James Webb. I saw a documentary about it. It's um, further from us than the moon, I think. And uh, tremendously powerful. But it can't detect pure consciousness. 
nor can an electron microscope detect it, nor can a particle accelerator detect it. So the, all the instruments, scientific instruments cannot detect it. Um, it's not an object to the senses, it's not an object to language, we just saw. Language can't, you can't speak about it, you cannot even think about it. Why? All thoughts are illumined by that, by you, pure consciousness. But that cannot be illumined by the thoughts. Yovetti sarvam nachayasya vetta. There is a hymn to Sri Ramakrishna which says, That which knows everything, but which is not known by anything. What is that? In Vedanta, that's the Atman, our real nature. But here in the hymn, it's referring to Sri Ramakrishna. Thereby, Sri Ramakrishna, Atman are the same thing. It's your real nature. So anyway, unthinkable. Unthinkable in the sense that it's not something tremendous that you can't even wrap your mind around. No, it's right there, but not in front of your minds. It's sort of, so to say, behind your mind. It is that which is looking at your mind. Not something that the mind can look at. Um, Sarvatragam. It is that which is all-pervading. Whatever is, is it. Achintyam already mentioned. It cannot be conceived of. Um, the three words are used. Kutastham achalam dhruvam. Kutastham achalam dhruvam. These are very beautiful, powerful words. Kutastham. It means that which exists in the middle of a heap. Kuta means a heap, a mass. Stha means established in. It's used in multiple senses. One is the one uh, which exists in the middle of, say, false witness is called Kuta Sakshi. In the middle of falsity. So, magi magician. The magic of the magician is not real, but the magician is real. The false witness is not real. I mean, the, what, what it said is not real, but the person who said it is real. In the midst of this magical display of Maya, where nothing is permanent, where nothing is ultimately real, it all comes and goes, every person comes and goes, every event arises and disappears, our own bodies arise, change and disappear, our thoughts come and go, perceptions, ideas, continuously, waking, dreaming and deep sleep come and go in an unending cycle. You might say, no, it comes to an end when you die, Swami. No, even life and death go on in an unending cycle. Nothing is stable here and everything is in display. But to what? In what? That is called Kutastha. There is something which um, shines forth as this magical display. The magical display of the universe is called Kuta, the heap. And that thing which shines forth as all of this is called Kutastha, that which is established unshakably in the middle of the heap. What's the heap? Your life. All your thoughts, all your uh, achievements, your failures, your frustrations, your dreams, your hopes, your days and your nights, your waking, dreaming and sleeping, your living and dying. In the midst of that, there is one unflickering light. That's you. That is Kutastham. And that's not just in the middle of one life. It's in the middle of the whirling universe. In which universes appear, exist and disappear. Srishti Sthiti Pralaya. The cycle of the birth, existence and disappearances of the universe. What is that? It is Kutastha. The one, one basis for all of that. The anvil upon which 
the goldsmith beats out and hammers gold into necklaces and bracelets and uh, tiaras uh, and at the end of it the anvil remains exactly the same kutastha mountain top is called kuta uh, the top of a mountain is called kuta imagine the top of a mountain i've seen this in uh, in the himalayas it's a object of meditation in itself i would sit and look up the, the true giants are there i was about 11000 10000 feet high there and the other mountain peaks there were i don't know 15 16000 feet 18000 feet beyond them were the true giants 20000 plus 20 to 4 25000 feet uh, but the ones i saw were somewhat higher than where the place i was sitting and the mountain tops completely bare of vegetation sparkling with the snow uh, on the um, top of the mountain there and brilliant display of color during sunset i have seen this also at one time there is at the same time on one mountain peak it was snowing raining or snowing other mountain peak was brilliantly shining in sunshine come sunshine come snow hail storms the mountain peak stands tall come glaciers coming down landslides mountain peak stands tall so kuta what is that which stands tall in the midst of cataclysm kutast it's you then achalam that which does not undergo birth death chalam means moving achalam unmoving that which does not move through birth um aging old age disease death that which does not undergo the cycle of birth and death this is the common paradigm we have in hinduism buddhism jainism sikhism we are moving through many lifetimes it says there is something that does not you actually do not that that's the real you and then achalam dhruvam dhruvam means see these words are almost similar kutastham achalam dhruvam you could translate all of them as stable um unmoving um, solid rock solid dhruvam is that which has its own inherent existence sthayi satta in hindi that which has stable existence there's no time to explain this this would require another 45 minutes no ted talk style this is entirety of the 16th verse of second chapter nasato vidyate bhavo na bhavo vidyate sat is packed into this word dhruvam that which everything has borrowed existence that alone has has intrinsic existence it is existence itself think about water and waves waves come and go water does not come and go in that context uh, think about the gold think about the gold and the ornaments ornaments you can melt the same gold and make a new ornament out of it but the gold remain gold all throughout that is dhruvam it has its own existence all the ornaments depend upon that gold all the waves depend upon that water everything in the universe depends upon that one being which you are it's called dhruvam how do you attain that it is you but what do we do to attain it next time another ted talk <laughs> that's verse number 4 we will see that next time and then also see why it's difficult and then he will make a transition into bhakti yoga the rest of the chapter is a commentary on bhakti yoga the practice of bhakti i have this talk coming up tomorrow it's an online event i'm going to talk about bhakti yoga 
the topic is bhakti yoga so my preparation is more or less good because i'm going this is the subject we're going to but there's a stipulation i have to speak in odia <laughs> which is a language which i have not spoken for decades now so i'll have to get used to it slowly Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupa Namastu